6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck begins his teaching on the book of Psalms, chapter 119, verses 73 through 176. Okay, well, we're continuing our review of Psalm 119. The longest chapter in the Bible, and obviously the longest psalm, and uh, we're in part two of Psalm 119. But just by way of review, for those that may have just joined us, we're dealing with an acrostic psalm. There's a handful of psalms that are acrostic, and uh, what we mean by that is that each verse, typically, starts with a different letter. Now, Psalm 119 is a little different, that it's divided into 22 sections, a section for each of the Hebrew alphabet. And uh, so each section consists of eight couplets, 16 lines, actually. And uh, each couplet, then, begins with the same letter, and then each successive group takes the next letter. And it's interesting that the name Yorhevave, the unpronounceable name of God in the minds of the rabbis, um, also occurs 22 times, although not that systematically, through the psalm. And uh, now, there's always a question of authorship. Most assume, many, many good scholars also assume, that this was written by David. Charles Spurgeon, in his monumental work, The Treasury of David, takes that position. And Herbert Lockyer, in his... Uh, monumental commentary on the Psalms takes that view. But there are other speculations you should be aware of. Uh, some even ascribe it to Moses, interestingly enough. There are a lot of reasons that isn't a widely held view. Um, many uh, scholars recognize it could, it could have been a second temple priest uh, during the Babylonian captivity. Babylon uh, conquered them. They were uh, exiled. And during that exile, one of the priests may have written it. There are reasons that uh, some scholars come to that conjecture. There are others that even think it was Jeremiah. Warren Wearsby takes that, uh, leans to that view, for example. We know it was a high-profile person for a number of reasons. He had opposition to other rulers and so forth. There's no mention of the sanctuary or to sacrifices or to a priestly ministry. That's why some scholars uh, presume that this may have been penned during the captivity. Um, the prominent characters in the psalm, of course, include the Lord God himself, yod the Elohim of Israel, and uh, certainly uh, the other group that's commonly alluded to in the psalm is the godly remnant of the nation itself. And the psalmist himself, obviously, is a participant. It sometimes gets uh, uh, centered on the author himself. But also alluded to are the ungodly people who, although they were born into the covenant relationship, they disdained the law and persecuted and falsely accused the psalmist, whoever he was. So those are the main players in this saga. This, In fact, I might call it an opera because it was intended to be sung. And uh, was it Jeremiah? That's what Wearsby likes to, uh, to uh, uh, suggest, uh, possibly to encourage the disciples after the destruction of the temple. And uh, 
He was a priest as well as a prophet, as the psalmist appears to be. He spoke with kings, at least five of them, Jeremiah did. And he bore the reproach for his faithfulness. He even cast into a dungeon. And uh, he was surrounded by lawless critics, imprisoned for his outspoken declarations. And he is known as the weeping prophet. He actually wept over the national decline. So all of that could fit. That's Wiersbe's suggestion. The main themes, of course, in the psalm all the way through, the uh, 22 sections, uh, is the practical use of the Word of God in the life of the believer. And that's one reason it's so dear to each one of us. That's why so many, many leaders throughout history committed this to memory because of its practical use in their lives. It rejoices in the Old Testament, of course. The Torah is a common term in it, and there are other equivalent terms. But they are used really to refer to the entire revelation of God, as found in the Old Testament, of course, because this is an Old Testament piece. It is the only word of God possessed by the early church, by the way, that is the Old Testament was, until finally the New Testaments were, uh, emerged and were distributed during the first century. But much of what we read about in the book of Acts occurred because of the package they were referring to when they said in the scriptures, they were referring to, of course, the Old Testament. And so the Psalm 119 embraces all of that. A lot of misunderstandings as we get through this psalm, and that is many Christians say, well, this is the Old Testament law versus New Testament grace. The law simply sets God's standard, and grace enables us to meet it, as the uh, book of Romans hammers away, especially in chapter 8. We need to be very conscious of the fact that the psalmist, throughout the entire psalm, is delighted in God's law. Many of us, from a Christian point of view, have a, take a different tack, but we need to understand that we should be delighting in God's law, law in the broad sense. To Paul, the law was holy, just, and good, and spiritual, as, is in, as the epistle to Romans hammers away, especially in chapter 7, which many of us call law school. The law uh, is a term in the, in the text is the Torah. That comes from a verb that actually means to direct, guide, aim, shoot forwards. It implies a rule of conduct. And it also is used simply to communicate the term of instruction in whatever form it might be. The other term we'll encounter is the way. Jesus himself said of himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And by this designation, we're to understand the rule of divine providence and of our own obedience. That's what we take the way. In the book of Acts, being a Christian was to, to be in the way, to be following the way. Another term that comes up is testimonies. What do we mean by that? It's derived from a word signifying to bear witness, to testify. The Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of Testimony it's often called, the two tables of stone, the tabernacle, these are all called by this term, the testimonies, because they were the witnesses of God's habitation among his people. The commandments. What do we mean by commandments? The word signifies something that was lodged with us in trust. At the root, it means to command or ordain a word given with authority. The word commandment, that, that uh, very comfortable in our, in our vernacular too, to think a commandment implies something given by authority. 
precepts. There's a term we don't use very much in our normal vocabulary. It means something entrusted to man, almost a synonym for command. A precept is something entrusted to us, obviously to follow, to be obedient to. The word, we use that term very casually. The, the Greek form of the Hebrew word is logos. That's a title of Jesus Christ. And it's a title that uh, the Apostle John uses very frequently, both in his gospel, in the book of Revelation, and also in his epistles. The term judgments, again, a term that we use very loosely. It's a judicial pronouncement of the law, a word signifying to govern or to judge, to determine judicial ordinances. Legal sanctions are implied. The next word is a word we use frequently, righteousness. What do we really mean by that? All divine judgments are righteous. And the divine word is all holy, just, good, and provides the only authentic rule and standard of righteousness to, uh, for man. Statutes. Literally, this term meant what is engraved. That's what a statute is. It literally means what's engraved. There's a law carved in stone or on metal, something you don't change frequently. Faithfulness. It's a noun. This designation is the equivalent of truth, which is another way of describing the word. Jesus declared himself to be the truth and the manifest, manifestation of God's unchanging faithfulness. I am the way, the truth, and life. John 14, 6. Very key designation, declaration by the Messiah himself. So these are terms. The law, the way, testimonies, commandments, precepts, word, judgments, righteousness, statutes, faithfulness. They all are very intimately connected. Each one has slight distinctives, but each one of these are used somewhat interchangeably throughout the psalm to emphasize various characteristics. We want to be sensitive to that as we go. Now, the law has different relationships. To, to, the un, to unsaved sinners, the law is an enemy. Why? Because it announces their condemnation, and it cannot save them. The law cannot save them. It's a crucial issue. To believers that are legalistic, the law is a master that robs them of their freedom, of their liberty in Christ. To spiritually minded believers, the law is a servant that helps them see the character of God and the completed work of Christ because he fulfilled the law on our behalf. We need to understand that. It's not something to be feared. It's something to be respected and be grateful for that Christ fulfilled it on our behalf. The attributes of God. He's obviously gracious. These are all through Psalm just in 119. He was gracious. He's true and the truth. He's righteous. He's good. He's trustworthy. He's eternal. He's light. And the, all, all these are terms that uh, emerge from our study of Psalm 119. It's also a practical. In addition to being theologically sound, it also is a practical psalm. It keeps us clean, gives us joy, guides us, establishes our values, helps us pray effectively, gives us hope. These are all topics that are focused on in Psalm 119. Gives us peace, gives us freedom, brings us best friends, interestingly enough. Find and fulfill our purposes. We need to find our purposes and certainly fulfill them. It strengthens our witness it resuscitates us. These are all specific practical helps in Psalm 119. It deserves our attention and focus. Now, 
We took part one in the previous session, verses one, the Aleph uh, octave, if you will, down to the last teteth, the ninth letter. So we went through nine octaves, if you will, in the previous session. And in this coming session, we will take the, the next few. Now remember, just to give you an example, in Aleph, it's an acrostic psalm, so we discovered that every, in the Hebrew, every line uh, begins, all eight of them begins with an Aleph. Uh, in the next one, the Beth, every first letter was a Beth, and so on, all the way through the 22 sections that make up the psalm. So, okay, part two, let's take a look at the, these, uh, the uh, Yot, through the Tao this evening. Verses 73 all the way to the end, verse 176. Well, the next one is a famous little Hebrew letter that you and I would mistake for a blemish on the paper or an apostrophe. It's called a Yod. And this is going to deal with the creature's appeal to the Creator. And you may recall this should echo in your mind whenever you see that letter when Jesus in Matthew 5 verse 18 said, Not one yacht or one tittle shall pass from the law until all be fulfilled. Now a yacht or a yacht is uh, what is in And uh, there are no trifles here. This is a call to taking every detail of the law, even the submarks of the letters. Not just the letters, not the letter of the law. The dotting of an I or the crossing of the T is, what is, the, is the equivalent phrase we would use in our language. So let's go through. Each one of these starts with a yod. And uh, thy hands have made me and fashioned me. See, right away the context here is speaking to God as a creator. Thy hands have made me and fashioned me and give me understanding that I may learn thy commandments. Boy, that ties it all together. Not, did, not only did God create us, but that gives us an obligation to find out what his rules are. There are no absolutes. Yes, there are. His absolutes. And uh, God made us, and he knows exactly what we need. (laughs) And by the way, our factory warranty expires if we don't deal with scheduled maintenance. You know, you buy a new car, you maintain the scheduled maintenance because you don't want the warranty obsoleted, right? That's true of us too. Our factory warranty is, is, uh, it requires all scheduled maintenance. Something else, we better read the owner's manual. We have sort of, in our, in our world, we, you know, when all else fails, we read the instructions, right? And, and, and maybe that's why God always has us fail, because that drives us to the owner's manual, right? But uh, one of our basic needs in life is not just food and shelter, that sort of thing, is the Word of God. And that's what the psalmist is Talking about here. Thy hands have made me and fashioned me. Give me understanding that I may learn what thy commandments. They that fear thee will be glad when they see me, because I have hoped in thy word. I know, O Lord, that thy judgments are right, and that thou in faithfulness has afflicted me. Let, I pray thee, thy merciful kindness be for my comfort. My comfort, not my ordeal, my comfort. According to thy word, unto thy servant. What are the vices to be shunned? Ingratitude. Thou hast made me. You need to remember that. Another vice to be shunned is pride. And you have fashioned me. Whatever I am, you made me. There's nothing I can be proud of. You made me. And another vice to be shunned is confidence in our own judgment. No, you give me understanding. 
and prying inquisitiveness, that I may learn thy statutes. This, this is the summary by Victor Hugo, interestingly enough. Moving on, they that fear me um, will be glad when they see me because I have hoped in thy word. And uh, when God makes our life a platform on which display his grace and power, Others will rejoice when that's manifested. That's what he's saying here. They that fear thee will be glad when they see me because I have hoped in thy word. My hope in thy word will please others that fear God. There's a fellowship that occurs. That's really what he's pointing out here. Let thy mercies come unto me that I may live for thy law is my delight. Let the proud be ashamed for they dealt perversely with me without cause but I will meditate on thy precepts. Let those that fear thee turn unto me and those that have known thy testimonies. Let my heart be sound in thy statutes that I be not ashamed. Many ministries that are powerless are powerless, are, they're hindered by a blunt or damaged sword. Many ministries that are powerless are hindered. By a blunt or damaged sword. What's a blunt or what's a, what is the sword of the Spirit? Word of God. Churches start preaching the Word and then wonder why they start prospering. Praise God. A cuff, hope and depression. And uh, this is uh, the 11th letter. It is intended to represent a hollow or curved hand to receive or retain something that's placed in it by another. And... Uh, this octave is the midnight of the psalmist's depression. This is as dark as it gets in, the, in this uh, oct octrain. My soul fainteth for my sal salvation, but I hope in thy word. Mine eyes fail for thy word, saying, When wilt thou comfort me? For I am become like a bottle in the smoke, yet I do not forget thy statutes. That refers to a wineskin, a bottle, a wineskin that's hung up in the fire, which then would become blackened, parched, and uh, cracked. And it's sort of a picture of one that's endured a great deal, a long and severe persecution. And uh, how many are the days of thy servant when wilt thou execute judgment on them that persecute me? Can you feel his, his, the depth here of his distress? The proud have digged pits for me, which are not after thy law. All thy commandments are faithful. They persecute me wrongfully. Help thou me. They, they had almost consumed me upon earth, but I forsook not thy precepts. Quicken me after thy loving kindness, so shall I keep the testimony of thy mouth. The next one is Laman, and this is the, check, this is the break point. This is the middle. It's going to deal with the inimitable word of God. It's the nadir. Just as the zenith is the top, the nadir is the depth, okay? The first 11 octaves we've been through, and they essentially ask the question, hitherto hath the Lord brought me, shall it be that I now perish? And the next 11 octaves will have the answer. The Lord's word changeth not. In spite of all forebodings, the Lord will, concerning me, perfect the word he hath already begun. And this is just a, a summary I was attracted to by Thrupp's commentary, an 18th century expositor, because it, he highlights the, the nadir aspect of this whole package. See, we're right in the middle now. Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. Wow. 
See, heaven is where the original copy of God's word is. <laughs> and uh, I believe we have a, a ver I believe in the plenary verbal inspiration and that we have a good copy, not a perfect, but a good copy of it in our laps. And uh, all of this is settled in the heavens and it will never pass away. Thy faithfulness is unto all generations. Thou hast established the earth and it abideth. And... Uh, Thou hast established the earth. You know, one of the most interesting studies you can get into is the anthropic principle. As we study everything we know about the universe, everything that science has done, and put it together, we discover that it's all kinds of ratios that if you change any one of them by just a little bit, one part in a million, it all falls apart. The intricacy of its interdependency demands skillful design, not only design, but maintenance. Well, if we have an ozone layer of one-tenth of one percent cosmic doom, oh, really? Then who may, who's been maintaining it? That argument that it's that delicate is an argument that was designed, but more important than that, that design has been maintained. Maintained. The orbit of the earth and the sun, it's exactly where it needs to be. A little closer, a little further, it all falls apart. Well, who's keeping it there? If the earth exhibited erratic movements life would be impossible. Thou hast established the earth, and it abideth. They continue this day according to thine ordinances, for all are thy servants. Unless thy law had been my delights, I should have perished in mine affliction. I will never forget thy precepts, for with them thou hast quickened me. This is the key thesis of this octave, that the word of God is certain, immutable, everlasting and dependable. I am thine, save me, for I have sought thy precepts. The wicked have waited for me to destroy me, but I will consider thy testimonies. I have seen an end of all perfection, but thy commandment is exceedingly broad. Okay. Well, the next letter is the mem, very, very similar to our M, if you will. And uh, it's the, it refers to what I call the 11-inch problem from the head to the heart. The benefits of pious musing is the way that uh, Lockyer would summarize this group here. And, uh, oh, how, I, how, how love I the law. It is my meditation all the day. And uh, it's going to go on here now and outstrip three classes of adversaries. First is enemies in, in, in verse 98. Thou, through thy commandments, hast made me wiser than mine enemies, for they are ever with me. See, the enemies, whose malice sharpens their wits, excel in policy. And yet, thou hast made me wiser than mine enemies, for they are ever with me. Next one. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for thy testimonies are my meditation. The teachers, who are furnished with learning and who excel in doctrine... He still outclasses. The enemies had malice. The teachers have all this elaborate doctrine. As I have more understanding than all my teachers. For my, thy testimonies are my meditation. And the third category are the ancients. The ancients grow wise by experience and, and safe counsel. He says, I understand more than the ancients because I keep thy precepts. So all three categories, enemies, teachers, ancient wisdom, he, he's head of all of them because he keeps the precepts. Enforced ignorance. That's our, uh, we live in a culture that enforces deliberate ignorance in our school. It used to be the school's goal was to teach kids. Today it's to confuse them. 
to, t- to pr- deny the very existence of what we should be pursuing. All through the Western civilization, the goal was to, was the, to discover truth. Even though we may do it imperfectly, that was the pursuit. Now we deny it even exists. Ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. And uh, the, the, in contrast to the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The contemporary world is a flight from truth. The, one of the most extreme examples of that is the attribution of design to randomness. Randomness and design are opposites. Opposites. I'm fond of pointing out the Rand Corporation, the granddaddy of all the think tanks, published in 1955 a collection of random numbers. That sounds to the name of that sounds trivial. Here's a book of random numbers. That seems silly. No, it's very hard to get random numbers. What do you mean by random numbers? They have absolutely no pattern. There's no predictability. There's no patterning. There's no symmetry. And they used computers to make sure there wasn't. The whole idea was to get any appearance of design out of those numbers. So when a scientist needed a series of random numbers for some experience, they would be validly random. They wouldn't, they wouldn't have a kind of periodicity or symmetry or any of these things. The idea was to get design out of it. That was understood in the 1950s. That was a great challenge to the computer industry to, to separate randomness from design. And today, we attribute design to randomness. That's the ultimate absurdity. It's defined as such. Search for extraterrestrial intelligence. We always read about these guys that have their antennas and they're looking for signals to represent intelligence in outer space. What do you mean by intelligence? No randomness, no periodicity. If it's periodic, it'd be natural in its origin. If it's random, it's just noise. What do you mean by intelligence? Information. Really? Non-randomness. Yes. Think what they're saying. And all of this, of course, is the, the whole thing, the whole point of our uh, culture is to deny the appearance of a creator. And there is a specific judgment that's pronounced on any culture that denies the creator. There's many different judgments, but the basics, the fundamental thing for which there is no excuse to deny him as a creator, there's a specific judgment that comes on a culture. Romans chapter 1 tells it. The specific judgment is homosexuality. Any culture that denies him as a creator is going to be judged. God will, I will give them over to homosexuality. Romans chapter 1, verse 20, read the rest. And it may sound controversial. Check it out yourself. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Psalms. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. Or you can call us on 1-800-K-HOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.